Support for Kansas City Today comes from Grandma's Office Catering, delivering made-from-scratch hot meals and individual boxed lunches for fast distribution to offices, warehouses, and factories, even on nights and weekends. Details are at grandmascatering.com. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia-Dean. Today is Tuesday, March 28th. Coming up, lawmakers on both sides of the state line are trying to pass bills that would limit gender-affirming care for transgender minors. But a local doctor says many don't have an accurate understanding of what that type of care looks like. Now, you're not going to put a five-year-old or a six-year-old on testosterone. You're, you're going to wait, let them see what's going on. We'll learn what transition typically looks like for transgender kids. But first, some headlines. The Kansas Supreme Court heard oral arguments yesterday in key abortion cases. Rose Conlin of the Kansas News Service reports, Attorney General Chris Kobach has asked the court to overrule its landmark decision protecting abortion rights. One case concerns whether a Kansas law banning a common second trimester abortion procedure should be reinstated. A lower court said the law defied the Supreme Court's 2019 ruling that the state constitution protects the right to an abortion. Solicitor General Anthony Powell said that decision should be overruled because it prevents reasonable abortion restrictions. That's really all we're coming to you today to ask you to uphold is a one reasonable restriction on abortion. But a decision against abortion providers would likely be monumental, potentially allowing the Republican-controlled state legislature to impose new restrictions or ban abortion outright. The Jackson County Legislature has resurrected a bill that bans anti-LGBTQ conversion therapy for minors. The scientifically discredited practice seeks to convert people to heterosexuality or traditional gender roles. Last week, the measure failed by just one vote. The resurrected bill is now in a committee and will have to be sent back to the floor for another vote. Legislator Jalen Anderson says conversion therapy is child abuse. And this is something that we should get on the books, that we should be able to take care of. And I look forward to working with, if when this gets passed, is working with the uh, prosecutor, Jean Peters Baker, so that it can be tied in to child abuse. The Jackson County Courthouse downtown will be lit in rainbow colors this week. County Executive Frank White ordered the lighting to support the ban on conversion therapy. We'll be back after this. It's Friday night. What places are you heading to for post-work happy hour? Tell us. This podcast is making a best of the best list and needs recommendation for happy hour menus at restaurants in KC. Text us at 816-601-4777. That's 816-601-4777. Standard texting rates apply. Last week, the Missouri Senate passed a bill that would prevent medical professionals from providing gender-affirming care to minors. That is, medical care that would help transgender kids live as the gender they identify with. Republican lawmakers say the measure helps protect children, but LGBTQ advocates say it can have severe mental health repercussions for trans kids, including suicide and self-harm. University health doctor Brandon Barthel is an endocrinologist who treats trans patients and an assistant professor at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. He told KCUR's Steve Kraske that medical transition doesn't happen until kids are older. So let me start with this. Why would someone need gender affirming care? What's what's being treated here? Yeah. So to take a couple steps back. So the way I explain it to people first is 
I think a lot of people haven't ever thought of the idea of gender identity, which is, you know, how we identify ourselves. So whether I feel like a man, whether I feel like a woman or something uh, in between or entirely different. So I think a lot of people haven't really ever thought about that. Then another step forward from that comes the idea of gender incongruence. So the idea that my gender identity doesn't necessarily match my my gender assigned at birth or my biological body. Mm -hmm. um, and so what we're trying to treat then is another step forward from that, which would be gender dysphoria. So the the negative feelings, the distress that comes from gender incongruence. You know, there's been a push across the country to ban gender affirming care, particularly for minors. So help me understand what exactly is this medical care that has the attention of lawmakers and Missouri's attorney general for that matter? Yeah, so it's, I think it's unclear exactly why there's such a widespread concerted effort to, to ban this type of care. It seems to have come out of nowhere. Um, so what I explain to patients, you know, I'm an adult endocrinologist, so I see adults, but uh, what I say is I'm trying to help them feel more comfortable in their bodies, feel more at home in their bodies, and you're using medications. Um, so so as an endocrinologist, what, what I primarily do is hormone therapy mm -hmm. uh, to help align their, their outsides, help align their physical characteristics with how they feel on the inside. Mm -hmm. And should, you know, you've used this term gender dysphoria here uh, this morning. What is that? Yeah. So gender dysphoria is the, the negative feelings, the distress, the discomfort that comes from um, not feeling at home in your body. So gender incongruence. So if you know, if I was born uh, XY male and I have uh, you know male body, um, and I was assigned male at birth as my gender, but but then growing up, you know, as I as I progress through adolescence and puberty, maybe I don't feel like that fits me very mm -hmm. well. Um, there's a lot of just distress and discomfort with that, um, and some of that distress sometimes you know I hear a lot of things from patients that are similar stories or how they describe it. So some of that is more innate and. Um, you know, patients tell me they feel uncomfortable when they see their their facial shape. Um, I've had a number of patients tell me that, you know, they feel uncomfortable looking in the mirror at themselves. They'll shower in the dark because just mm. looking at their own body feels, you know, they just don't feel like it belongs to them. Um, wow. And then and then another piece of, of that discomfort comes from how society treats them. Because if I'm going through my day constantly being called sir, and I feel like that's not the right way to address me, I feel like a ma'am, then, then that's very uncomfortable as well. So you've mentioned hormone therapy. There's also something called puberty blockers. Explain those to us. Yeah. And so I think that's important to, to discuss because I think, um, I, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the stuff you hear out there, people want to paint the picture that there are children of, you know, six to eight going in and getting surgeries and, and really radical things happening. But Puberty blockers would be actually the very first intervention, medical intervention that would be done in, in an adolescent with gender dysphoria. Uh, so again, not a child, but an adolescent. And so nothing can really start uh, medically until that, that adolescent begins to enter puberty and they begin to have some changes. And so what puberty blockers do at that point is they kind of provide two nice things for you. One, they buy you more time for the mental health and psychosocial assessment and working through things um, for to that make, patient. To make sure that conversion is, is what you want to do, in fact. Yeah. yeah. And so, you're, you know, you're usually going to be looking at a, at a patient who's had um, at least six months minimum, if not a year of gender dysphoria symptoms. Um, you're going to be work. They're going to be working with uh, mental health professionals, psychologists, psychiatrists, et cetera, um, to work through those feelings, understand themselves, understand if this is something that is going to be longstanding for them. 
And, you know, that can be a long process for some patients. And so what, what the puberty blockers do is they give you a nice delay in puberty progression, which you can't start until you've already started puberty. Is that dangerous? Um, no. So they're widely used medications. Um, pediatric endocrinologists also use them in much younger patients for early onset puberty or precocious puberty for the exact same reasons. So very similar patient population, but if anything, younger. Um, and in those in those patients, they're you know, patients are inappropriately going through puberty very early, maybe six or seven, um, and, and they can be on those puberty-blocking medications for years. We just mentioned uh, young kids uh, going through these transitions, and we've talked with parents on this show with trans uh, kids who say they began their transition as early as age four. Doctor, how can we be sure that a kid that young understands this concept of identity, gender, and sex? I mean, this seems like pretty complex stuff for someone that young. Sure, it absolutely is complex stuff. And I think it's complex stuff that many people wrestle with for, for quite a while. Um, in the case of, you know, younger children like that, really the the only thing that you're going to be doing that would be considered treatment at that point would be exploring those feelings with them, discussing what it, you know, what it means, how do they feel, whether they are just, um, you know, expressing themselves in a unique way or whether they truly have, you know, what I would think of as gender dysphoria of, I'm in the wrong body or, the, you know, this body doesn't feel right for me or that sort of thing, uh, which is, you know, quite a bit different than I'm a boy who likes to play with Barbies or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Um, and so, so the main thing that's going to be happening at that young age is just discussion, exploring, um, you know, perhaps working with a, a therapist to understand what's going on. And there's no rush, you know, again, there's no treatment even available medically speaking for those patients because there's nothing to do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're not going to put a five-year-old or a six-year-old on testosterone. You're, you're going to wait, let them see what's going on. Maybe they hit 11 or 12 and then they start to show the first signs of puberty. That's when things start to get a little bit more urgent because, you know, you want to perhaps buy some time for them to really solidify their gender identity and understand themselves. That still strikes me as awfully young to make those big decisions. Yeah, and so so again, um, and I would I would stress that there, these are not decisions that these these uh, kids or adolescents are making alone, right? So it's mm-hmm. not a there's not a an 11 year old in in an office uh, somewhere making this decision by themselves. The parents are involved. Um, there's a multidisciplinary team typically involved, so that would be mental health professional, endocrinologist, um, ideally both parents. Um, and then the patient themselves. And I say that, and then there's this national survey by the National Center for Transgender Equality reported uh, more more than 27,000 kids uh, who responded. 38% of them knew they were trans before age five. 60% knew they were trans before age 10. So it it sounds like almost all of them had a pretty good idea that it was, they, they were wanted to make a conversion at a pretty young age. Yeah. And and many of my patients, again, being an adult endocrinologist, I see 18 and up. I mean, um, most of my patients have not had any care prior to when they come to see me. And they all have pretty similar stories in terms of knowing something was going on, knowing that they felt different than their peers from a pretty young age. Yeah. Um, How common is it then that a young child might change his or her mind down the road? So it depends on what you mean by young child, but uh, but yeah, early pre-puberty, four, five, six-year-old, um, it's it's pretty common that they might change, and that's uh, one reason why 
discussion and, and therapy and, and, you know, self-exploration is the most important thing during that time. Just to be clear, you're saying it is common, even though these uh, surveys suggest that people know they were ready to make a conversion before age 10. Yeah. I mean, and that's a lot of, uh, you know, that's an age of a lot of self-discovery, right? And, and uh, you know, I'm not sure I can pinpoint exactly when I first understood my gender identity or sexual orientation. It happens at different ages for different people. But yeah. that's kind of the the range, the general range where that stuff is happening and we're understanding ourselves. Is hormone therapy reversible, doctor? Um, so some components of hormone therapy are reversible, but uh, for sure, many, many, uh, many of the changes are are permanent. Yeah. So that's important to understand. Now, for people not familiar with gender affirming care, I think the thought might quickly turn to this idea of surgery. You hear this a lot from lawmakers. Absolutely. Uh, lawmakers sometimes uh, characterize it as mutilation. At what point in the process does surgery become an option? Yeah. So. First of all, I think it's important to understand that not everybody wants the same thing. And and so it's, you know, gender affirming care is not this uh, set in stone progression of events that once it's started, it can't be stopped and everybody's getting the exact same thing. Um, so I have many patients who have no interest in surgery. Um, I probably have more patients who are, you know, would potentially be interested in surgery if cost and access to care and things like that weren't a factor, unfortunately. Um, but but the point being, not everybody's going to get surgery, and it's certainly not going to be common for anybody under the age of 18. So plain and simple, are children being offered genital or breast surgery then? Not in my experience. Um, I think, you know, if you look, you can find a handful of patients, um, and, and there have been a few in the news, who maybe had uh, chest masculinization surgery, you know, at age 16 or 17. Um, that would be pretty uncommon, very, very uncommon. Um, any kind of bottom surgery or genital uh, reconstruction or anything like that, um, I've never heard of that happening under the age of 18. So how common is surgery, bottom line? Um, so for, for minors, extremely uncommon. Um, mm. For adults, more common. I would say, in my experience, uh, most of my trans men, which would be you know, people assigned female at birth who transition into a masculine identity. Um, top surgery or, or mastectomy with chest masculinization is pretty common because their chest is usually a pretty significant source of dysphoria for them. Um, but, uh, but other than that, I, you know, I don't have a lot of patients who ultimately pursue surgery. That was University Health Endocrinologist and UMKC Professor Brandon Barthel speaking with KCUR's Steve Kraske. You can hear their entire conversation from up to date at kcur.org. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujiadeen. This podcast is produced by Paris Norvell and KCUR Studios and edited by Lisa Rodriguez and Gabe Rosenberg. For more local news from Kansas City's NPR station, visit kcur.org. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you tomorrow. You listen to this podcast every day because it's your KC local reliable news source. You take us seriously. But you know, we like to get down and we want you to party with us. Join us at our annual benefit, Radioactive, on June 14th. NPR's All Things Considered host, Ari Shapiro, is the featured guest at this party, and it's gonna be bumping. You gotta be there. Sponsorship packages and ticket information are available at kcur.org slash radioactive.